about a month ago, we talked about the seven trumpets that are found in the book of Revelation and very scary picture that's given us there. The trumpets, as we said, as as I remember saying um, a month ago, is really not a picture of God punishing the wicked as much as a, a picture of rampaging evil in this world. And God is trying to point out that there is an enemy afoot that is exacerbating, that is abetting, and that is spreading evil in this world. And that in those, in the, in, in those trumpets, especially the first six trumpets, we find a refrain that God, or Jesus Christ, starts to um, unfold before us. And by the time we get to chapter 12, he will reveal to us fully the identity of this evil that is sentient, that is, it is not just a force of evil, it is, it is, it is something that is, that is uh, conscious, it is, a, it is a being, as a matter of fact, it's an army that is afoot in this world, and they have a leader in front of them, ahead of them. And that the trumpets refrain, if you recall from, the, uh, from Revelation chapter 8 all the way down to, to chapter 10, you remember that refrain. It's where God keeps saying a third of this, a third of that, a third of this, and a third of that. We will find out, of course, we already know because we have read and reread Scripture and Revelation. We already know who it is. So we have the, you know, the, uh, um, we have the, the luxury of hindsight. And yet we see this um, gradual unfolding. Even if we already know who this person is. And we ask ourselves this question, if God is not in the trumpets, if he's not the one that's causing all of these things, then where is he in the world today? How does he mean to respond to this juggernaut of evil that we see in our world today? Today we find a clear answer in chapters 10 and chapter, chapters 10 and 11 of, of Revelation. And the answer, I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. And then we're going to unfold this answer together today. That God is in the world among his scattered people of every color, of every language, and of every nation mobilizing them, mobilizing us to respond to evil. And in Revelation 10 and 11, God pauses, as it were, pauses the action and highlights this response and this triumph over evil. And so we find ourselves going back as we were able to, in a cursory way anyway, talk about Revelation 10 and 11, a month ago, but I wanted us to go back a little bit and, and focus a little bit more on what these two chapters have to say. Because what happens in Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11 is not so much um, happening only now as much as it, it is, it's been happening throughout the ages. As God highlights that He is still present in this world and that He is present in His church among His people as He inspires, as He challenges his people to respond to evil and take the victory of Jesus Christ 
as their victory as well, as they live, as we live our lives in this world, pushing back on evil to the very end of time. And the language in which we find the, uh, you know, of course, the book of Revelation is a, it's a very, uh, the language is given us here, especially, especially Revelation 10 and 11, God's answer to uh, rampaging evil in the world is given to us in a parable, um, and it's a, an allegorical parable at that, which means that whatever we read here in these uh, two chapters, we need to refrain from taking too literally in order to free our minds to be able to see the larger picture that God wants to give us. First of all, we find that God responds to the world's spiraling evil by challenging and inspiring you and me, first of all, to devour His Word and to internalize His, his values, the values of His kingdom, the principles that animate God's kingdom and God's universe and the structure of reality as God has constituted it. He wants us to, um, He wants to challenge us by devouring this Word. We find, where do we find this? We find this in Revelation chapter 10. Um, okay, can we turn on that, <laughs> that screen up there? All right. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. And it says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So we find that God responds to the world's, respond to the world's uh, spiraling evil is first of all found in Him challenging and inspiring you and me to so devour His Word, to so eat His Word that it becomes sweet in our mouths, that we internalize His, his values and His principles and the structure in which He constituted His, 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 his universe. And that this in, in turn will, will free us from, our, from any harmful and undesirable qualities that may still be lingering in our, in our, in our hearts and in our minds, in our persons. And that would be the part where it says, it tastes as honey in my mouth. Stirring us through the knotted pain of righteous anger, and that would be the stomach that was made bitter, and rousing us to action where it, is, you know, where, where it says, in verse 11, then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You and I are at the forefront of God's response to evil. It's always been that way. It will always be that way to the very end of time. And when we respond to God's challenge in this way, his promise to us is very clear, and it's found in the next few verses as we transition now to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When we respond to God's challenge in this way, God's promise is that He will measure our situation. He will assess us 
And so clothe and protect us to complete our tour of duty. Every single day we will be fully protected by the word of God, by, him, by God himself, and not a day less. Let's take a look at what it says in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And by the way, the, the New Testament believers, once they, once they saw that or read that temple of God, they would have understood that God, you know, that, that, that they're being referred to as the, uh, they themselves. You know, the temple of God in the New Testament becomes the church of God, the people of God. And what is being told us here is that, look, when we take our witness seriously and we become the mouthpieces of God, the arms and the legs of God out there in the world, as we confront the evils of the world, the evil structures of the world, whatever evils there might be in the world, the promise is what we find here in Revelation chapters, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. That God, that word measure, is perhaps the, uh, the key, uh, you know, the key uh, word here in this, in this part of, of Revelation chapter 11. What does it mean? I struggled with this, uh, you know, with this myself as I try to understand what God is trying to communicate to us here. And so, as soon as I discovered it, and as soon as I realized what it is, you know, I decided to wear this shirt today. What is so, so important about this shirt? Well, because this shirt was tailor-made for me. I remember when I was a little kid growing up in another country, that my best clothes were tailor-made. It used to be that way. I'm not sure if anybody does that these days. All you do is, all, these days, all you got to do is go to the, uh, to the malls and, you know, and, and, and buy the best ones that are already there. And you try to, you know, you try to pick the ones that fit you best and so on. When I was growing up, that wasn't the case. My best clothes were always tailor-fitted, uh, tailor-made for me, and we always went to the seamstress and the tailor and and, and, it was, you know, and, and my best clothes were all handmade. And the promise of measuring here speaks to that. That when we go out and steps, when we step out into the world and be God's mouthpieces to the world, in confronting the evils that we find in our society and bringing them to gospel obedience every which way we can, that the promise is that we will not go there alone, unclothed, as it were, naked, as it were. But we will be fully measured out, every single one of us. And God will measure us, our needs, what equipment we might need, tailor-made to your specification, to our specification as individuals. And the promise is that, that, you know, that as we do that, God will make sure that we will not spend a day out there in the world ministering and witnessing for God as it were naked and alone. He will come to us and He will grant us all the necessary power, all the necessary equipment. He will fit us with everything that we need so that throughout the entire length of our tour of duty, as it were. And here he describes it in, as, as um, 42 months. Whatever that means. Let's read that. Let me go ahead and push on to verse 2. It says, But do not measure the court outside the temple, 
leave that out, for it, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Once again, I emphasize here, brothers, sisters, friends, that we must take this allegorically. Otherwise, we will run into whole, whole sorts of problems and we will, you know, we will miss the mark. For what is being told here is that just as God measures His people and fits them, clothes them, clothes us for service, that is not what He does to those that are out there that are not doing God's bidding. They will be left out on their own, as it were. But you and I will be fully clothed as we, as we step out into the world, a world that is described here, the holy city is being described, is, 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 um, the holy city here refers to the entire world, really. For 42 months, a period which is, you know, if we take it literally, it would be three and a half years. But once again, this is not a literal rendering. This is an allegorical rendering. And we will go back, we will come back and, and see that that 42 months will be restated in another way. And, 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 um, and uh, both restatements actually would equal to three and a half years. And I want you to note that three and a half years, because that three and a half years is crucial to, part, it's crucial to the understanding of this text. Where do we get... The three and a half years. Well, the three and a half years, if we if we base it partly from the uh, from the uh, from the gospel accounts, as well as from Daniel chapter eight verse twenty and, and and following, we find that to be the the entire length, the entire length of Jesus Christ's own witness here on earth, from the time he was baptized to the time when he gave up the ghost and he was crucified. So what God is communicating here seems to, seems to be that God, when his people decide to step out there and be his mouthpiece out there in the world, rolling back evil, rampaging evil, a juggernaut of evil, unstoppable it seems, that not only does he pro promise to measure us and clothe us and so protect us in his own way. He promises as well to do it throughout the entire length of our own witness, however long that would be for us. And for us, in the same way as it was for our Lord, it will be from the time you are baptized to the time you die. That is the length of the witness of every Christian throughout the entire length or the entire length of your days, from the time you became a believer to the time you give up the ghost and you die for the Lord, however, whatever that looks like. When we respond to God's challenge to step out into the world and devour His, his Word, and th by devouring His Word, we become transformed from the inside out. And by devouring His Word, we start to realize that what we what we have become because of the Word and the, and the principles and the values that have now become part of us is not what's out there in the world. We become angry. We become angry at what we see and that anger pushes us to action, to right the wrongs and become the change out there in the world that we want to see. He will measure us, and He 
will make sure that we are fully protected and that fully equipped throughout the entire length of our witness, which is here given as 42 months, metaphorically. And God further promises that our witness, that our witness will be, first of all, unquestionable, unbroken, unquenchable, and unconquerable. And here's how it is worded in this very allegorical fashion as we, let's move on to verse, verse 3. And I will grant my two witnesses, there it is. Now we transition from, you know, uh, John being the, you know, the symbol for all the Christians, right? To now John disappears or recedes into the background and now we have another metaphor being utilized here. So you will see that, you know, uh, in, in this text we have um, our text shifting in, in the way it's, it's, it's trying to convey what it's trying to convey. Uh, once again, in a very metaphorical, in a very allegorical fashion, so we must not take this literally. And he says, I will grant my two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Well, because Scripture says that it is, it is by the witness of at least two or three that something will be proved right. Reminding us that when we give our lives, we dedicate our entire lives to the, to, uh, uh, for God to be His mouthpiece, His hands and His feet out there in the world, that he, His promise is that your witness will be unquestionable. Nobody will be able to gainsay your witness, He says. Because not only are you not there alone, there's, there are others who are also doing the same thing, and, you, and together your witness becomes becomes this complete witness and empowered by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the, by, by the tools that God has given it to you, that has, God has clothed you after measuring you, that your witness becomes unquestionable. And then also it becomes unbroken. You see, the, look, look, look how, um, you know, the Word of God, how God rewords now and reframes the same amount of time 42 months. And he reframes it from the vantage point of one who is witnessing from the time they became a Christian to the time they die. They allegorize, it's, it, God now allegorizes this time, time frame in another way. It says, for 1,260 days. Why days as opposed to months? I've been kind of wondering about that myself. And I realized that, you know, the wicked's, uh, you know, um, concept of time is different from the righteous concept of time. To us Christians, we live every day by the grace of God. To us, our witness is daily. And that is precisely, I think, why the witness of Christians is presented to be a daily thing, uh, a a uh, an, an unbroken succession of 1,260 days. They're again not taken literally, but metaphorically. Because every single day of our lives, we witness. Witness is not an event. Witness is your life itself. It's how you conduct yourself out there in the world. 
in the name of God. So our witness will be unquestionable. It will be unbroken for 1,260 days, three and a half years. The same length of time, really, uh, if, if, provided we don't take it too literally. From the time we give our lives to Jesus Christ to the time we die. And it's unquenchable. Take a look at what it says here in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The fire of those lampstands will never be, will never be uh, extinguished. Why? Because it will always be provided for. The strength of our witness will always be provided for by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. Our lights, as it were, will always be flickering. We remember the words of our Lord when He says, You are the light of the world, and we are indeed the light of the world. And, and, and now take a look at verse, verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, once again, the, the metaphor now here changes quite a bit. Because now it, it gives us an analogy that, that, that takes our minds back to two instances in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. What are they? The instances when there were contests, there were, there were contests between Yahweh, God, and the gods of the day. The, 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 the false gods of the day. Take a look at this. If anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Where do we find that? Elijah. In the days of Elijah, when there was a contest between Yahweh and the gods of Baal, the god Baal and the gods of, Asherah pole, of the Asherah poles. And then we find further uh, in, in verse 6 that, you know, the, 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 the text is leading us to another uh, time in Scripture. Verse 6, they have authority to shut the sky so that no rain, well, that's still part of the Elijah experience, so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters. Now it's shifting, it's shifting to another place. It's taking our minds to another place, taking us to another place. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood. Where do we find that? When there was a contest between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. They have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And God is promising to you and me that when we give ourselves as witnesses for Him throughout the entire length of our days, not only will our, will our witness be unquestionable and unbroken and unquenchable, it will also be unconquerable. The gods of this world will not be able to stand against the God whom you and I represent. Our witness will be unconquerable. That is not to say that we will always end up standing, you know, end up alive in the end of this process, because that is not what it is, what our text is communicating communicating to us. There will be times, and many times, when we will give our lives in the process of gaining victory. And, 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 and our scripture will tell us that's okay. After all, the disciples cannot rise above their master. 
And if our master was killed for the faith, so can we, and that's okay. And finally, God promises that while our witness, that, 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 that as we witness for God and as we rise up to the occasion and God fulfills the, these promises that He will clothe us and protect us, fulfills the promise that He will make our witness sh truly shine. Finally, God promises that while our witness will be met with violence and brutality, which may cost us our lives, as I just said, it will lead, it, this witness will be truly effective. It will lead many to repentance before it is too late. I want you to read down with me Revelation chapter 7 all the way down to 14. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Yes, there will come a time when in the process of our witnessing that it will appear to, all of, to, to most people, including ourselves, that our witness has been defeated and it's been for naught. And yet the promise is that God will keep His promise and that despite all appearances, your witness and my witness will truly be victorious. And here's how it pans, pans out. Verse 9. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. What happens when all of hell, it seems like, meets our witness with violence and, uh, and, and, and all that stuff? What happens is that, as it is described here in this, in this text and, and in succeeding verses, what happens is that our witness is thrust into the forefront of people's consciousness all over the world. And when that happens, the people in the world will act on this one of three ways. And it is described here as well. And what, described, what is described here in verse 9 is something that you, know, you may not expect because what I see, what I see in, this ver in verse 9 is that when we give our, 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 ourselves to fully for the witness of God, you will have people thinking twice about their place in the world and about God himself. Take a look at what's happening here. It says, a member or uh, members of the peoples and, and tribes and languages and nations. That's a very unusual, a very unusual phrase. The construction there is, is called partitive uh, 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 um, genitive. Uh, don't worry about that, what that means. What it means is that those members or some of the people, some of the people in the world will, are, are starting to think twice about how they're living their lives. 
They see the witness of people uncompromising, wholehearted, going to the very end, whatever that end calls for. Whatever that end might be. When our witness becomes this way, we will inevitably, according to God, cause people to think about their place in the world. And the tri- members of the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. They will refuse, some of them, to let it go to rest. Why? Perhaps because they are outraged at the you know, injustice that is often perpetrated against God's people when they witness unflinchingly to God. But of course, that is not the only, that is not the only uh, um, response that, that we have here. And here's another response. And the inhabitants of the earth, that is the rest of the, of the earth, will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. The majority of the world will still spurn our witness. Never mind. If it can save one, it's our witness has been worthwhile. And once again, as we go back to, go back to verse 9, that is what we find. Don't be um, fearful about your own witness. Or don't feel that your witness is not being heard or it's not, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It does matter. Verse 10, And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, But after the three and a half days, once again, you see here a pattern you see something emerging here is that the pattern of our witness, if it is anywhere near being faithful, if our, our worship is anywhere near being faithful witness, what does it look like to you? It's going to mirror the witness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember those days, three days roughly, and that, you know, when Jesus Christ gave up the ghost between Friday and Sunday, between him dying on the cross and resurrecting on the third day, on uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday, it appears that all witness, the Jesus Christ witness has been defeated, that he, you know, that he is fully defeated. But the promise of God is just as he was able to resurrect that witness from, the de- from death to life, so will he do the same so so god will do the same thing with your witness and mine and our witness will be resurrected as it were causing many people to take a second look at god and give him a second chance and give their lives to him and repent Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave... And here's, and here's where 
our witness becomes truly, truly magnificent. Because in all of that, despite our witness being defeated by this onslaught of evil, it appears that that will not be the case. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. When you give your life to God so that your entire life is a witness to the goodness and the grace of God, don't worry about the results. Let God worry about that. Let Him fulfill His promises here. And He will fulfill it. Your witness will not be forgotten. Whatever, that, uh, whatever you think your witness might look like today, if you think your witness is not making any you know, headway out there in the world, think again. Because God will fulfill His promises here. He will make your witness count. I'm sure you can all uh, um, identify with me. When we all saw I saw it about a week ago or so. This horrific, this horrific image of a policeman kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. While he's begging for his life, I can't breathe. You remember in 2016, this person who was vilified for kneeling when our national anthem was being played. Colin Kaepernick, I think is his name. And I was one of those, to be honest with you as well, that felt that he, you know, that, you know, what he was doing was wrong. And I realize now that what he was doing was right. In 2016, Colin Kaepernick, a Christian, was vilified for using his high-profile status to highlight the social injustices that are happening in our country today. Especially among the black people. By kneeling while the national anthem is being played as a protest to call attention to the, all of these injustices that are happening. And you know, it cost him his, his career. Today, his witness, people are taking a second look at this man's witness. Let me read to you from an article that I read just very recently about people that criticized him back then that are now finding that they were wrong and that this man was right. In an article titled, Colin Kaepernick owed tremendous amount Seahawk, Seahawk, Seahawk coach Pete Carroll says. Here's part of that article. It says, Seahawk, Seahawks um, coach Pete Carroll said, Tuesday, we owe a tremendous amount to uh, Colin Kaepernick for his social just, justice activism during the 2016 NFL season. Carroll was joined by Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr and the San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich on his Flying Coach podcast 
According to the Seattle Times, Carroll opened up on the police-involved death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25 and the ensuing protests that have lasted for about a week. And what about this man who was killed pleading for his life as this cop knelt on his neck for all those nine minutes? What may not be apparent to, uh, to most of us is that th he was a Christian as well. And that what is not being trumpeted out there in the world is that this person left a legacy, a Christian legacy in, in his hometown in Texas. Reading from a Christianity T Today article, here's what it says. The rest of the country knows George Floyd from several minutes of cell phone footage captured during his final hours. But in Houston's third ward, they know Floyd for how he lived for decades, a mentor to a generation of young men and a person of peace uh, ushering ministries into the area. Before moving to Minneapolis for a job opportunity through a Christian work program, the 46-year-old spent almost his entire life in the historically black third ward where he was called Big Floyd and regarded as an OG, a de facto community leader and elder statesman, his ministry partners say. Floyd spoke of breaking the cycle of violence he saw among young people and used his influence to bring outside ministries to the area to do discipleship and outreach, particularly in the CUNY Homes housing project locally known as the bricks. George Floyd was a person of peace, sent from the Lord that helped the gospel go forward in a place that I never lived in, said Patrick P.T. Ngwalo, pastor of Resurrection Houston, which held services on CUNY. The platform for us to reach the neighborhood and the hundreds of people we reached through the time, that time, and up to now was built on the backs of people like Floyd. He told Christianity Today. And Wallow and fellow leaders met Floyd in 2010. He was a towering six, six foot six guest who showed up at a benefit concert th they put on for the third ward. From the start, Big Floyd made his priorities clear. He said, I love what you're doing. The neighborhood need it. The community need it. And if y'all about God's business, then that's my business too. He said, whatever you all need, whatever you all need to go, wherever you all need to go, tell him Floyd said, you're good. I got you all. And now we see how injustice could take the life of a Christian and how that witness somehow or other becomes a focal point for the rest of the world to take a second look and perhaps that would lead to something bigger and better down the line. Brothers and sisters, we are God's response to the evil of this world. And if we remain quiet 
And if we remain within the cloisters of our own comfort, comfort zones, then how would God be able to fulfill His promises here? Unless we devour the Word of God and let the principles and the values of the Word of God become ours. Unless that energizes us or that creates in us this passion to right the wrongs that are being committed in the world. And unless we decide for ourselves to be the, the answer, part of the answer that we are looking for in the world, God will not be able to fulfill the promises that He gives us here in this, in this text. But if we are faithful to God, His promises will be true. He will make us shine and our witness to the world will count for something. And we will be able to lead people back to the fold of God. Father God, thank you so very much for opening your word to us today. Help us to be good witnesses for you. And as we do that, fulfill your promises to us, O oh God. Measure us, clothe us. And take care of our witnesses so that we, our witnesses, will be effective in accordance to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.